Hello out there and welcome back to the GamecockScoop.com podcast, the official podcast of GamecockScoop.com. I'm Caleb, joined by Alan. Um, and we're going to talk a little recruiting, some off-season football news, uh, a little basketball, and even preview baseball just for a second there. Is, that's right around the corner, just a couple weeks away. Um, before we get too deep into anything, we always start off with recruiting. So this weekend uh, upcoming is a big junior day opportunity for the 2024 class, which is kind of in full swing, even though uh, 2023 hasn't completely uh, tied that bow up yet. Um, this past week, a lot of the coaches are on the road recruiting. Um, one of the 2023 targets that got seen was Elijah Caldwell. Uh, Justin Stepp stopped by for an in-school visit with him. Um, still think South Carolina is in pretty good position there, but we'll know more soon. Haven't put in a future cast either way yet. Um, and then Nicholas Harbor, of course, uh, pretty much the whole, <laughs> uh, as many people as can, uh, stop in and see him over the next several weeks are doing so. Um, I, we, we talked about how Harbaugh might leave Michigan and that might have an impact, which, Right now, it seems like that's not going to happen, but Michigan does still seem like they're having um, their own interesting time right now. So, um, And then Oregon uh, is still going to be a factor there, I think, just because of the Nike tie-in and all the track stuff, too. All the track stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's see. We have at least one welcome home that hasn't been revealed yet. Um I've said on GamecockScoop.com on the Insiders Forum that it's probably a transfer. Uh, and if you go through our transfer tracker, you can probably track down who that is. Also, I might talk about him here shortly. So, um, But yeah, we're just waiting on that to be fully revealed and all that sort of stuff. Um, there was another one that I brought up last week on the podcast and that I've talked about extensively on GamecockScoop.com. Uh, and that's Trahan Jeffcoat, uh, who is the Missouri... Uh, edge transfer that it seemed basically like there was a he was a shoe in uh, to end up at South Carolina. He visited last weekend. Um, we really can't get too deep into the details of why that didn't work out. Um, it wasn't because the staff, you know, fumbled or, or anything. It wasn't because Jeffco didn't want to be here. Um, but you know, some sometimes you just got to let people's private. Uh, situations be private and that's what we're going to do with that but yeah so that doesn't look like it's going to happen now um so that's actually as the transfer portal uh continues as it reopens in the spring um you really hope that you can find an edge i know that there is a d-line guy that they uh should be in the mix for but he's more of an interior player but maybe you you know uh get that interior player and slide someone out uh, like Honka, Tonka Hemingway, who played a good bit uh, outside. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely going to be a position of need uh, heading into the season. We'll talk about some more of those positions here shortly. Um, the Junior Day weekend, I'll have the full visitors list tomorrow on the weekly recruiting wrap-up on GamecockScoop.com. Um, a couple of uh, early like guys to... Think about, obviously, Dante Reno, uh, the 2024 quarterback commit, will be in town. Uh, we know Josiah Thompson, Blake Franks, 
supposed to be here. Um, Dylan Stewart and Wendell Gregory supposed to be here. I, I put a like an initial list out last week, um, but there'll be a lot more than that that I'll I'll post tomorrow. I also got some announcement dates coming up very very soon. So you got 2024 O lineman Cam Pringle. It's a four star. Um, he's set to announce on the 22nd of January. Uh, it's kind of a weird one. I, I did put in a future cast, um, for Pringle last week, but it's, it's like, that's one of my weaker ones. You know, um, <laughs> if I could put a percentage on it, a bit like 65% or something, I do think, you know, he's visited South Carolina a ton. He's got a strong relationship with the, the staff. Um, but I did mention this, uh, when I was talking with the national guys, uh, cause we talked about, you know, whether or not he would ultimately sign with South Carolina. And, um, when I talked to him last year, which of course teenage kid, right. But when I talked <laughs> to him last year, he definitely seemed very interested in, uh, going to a blue blood, uh, like Ohio state or something. But then of course, Ohio state's not on his top six when that, uh, final six comes out. So, um, I do think ultimately probably stays in the state, but that's one that wouldn't surprise me one way or another. Uh, you also have 2024 tight end Michael Smith, who uh, recently got his fourth star uh, on Rivals, is set to announce on January 24th. And then another four-star Rivals 250 linebacker, 2024 linebacker Wendell Gregory, is supposed to announce on January 27th. So quite a few of those early 2024 targets. That's yeah, three in a week right there. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, 2023, you got Elijah Caldwell and Harbor. Both need to make their decision by the 1st of February. Um, so that'll be coming here in the next couple of weeks as well. So uh, stay locked on GamecockScoop.com for any updates on all that. Um, and you can kind of look at what my late, latest future casts are and Connect some dots for yourself there, if you like. Um, let's talk football. So the transfer portal window officially closed yesterday. Today? Or, today. Yeah, today's Thursday. Yesterday. Um, so that doesn't mean that you won't have another round of South Carolina players uh, potentially entering the portal after spring practice. Uh, in fact, I assume we probably will. Um, but for right now, we kind of have an idea of at least what the roster is going to look like going into spring practice. Um, there's still people that are in the portal that can be pursued by South Carolina. You just to have entered your name by yesterday into the portal for this particular window. Uh, again, there'll be another window in the spring and we'll, we'll talk about some of those possibilities as it happens. But yeah, so I thought we would take an early look at the depth chart now that we know kind of who's coming back. Uh, at least at the moment, now that we know some of the transfers that are coming in. Um, so where you want to start? You want to start on the outside? You want to start running back? The easiest place to start is quarterback, right? Yeah, uh, if we're doing offense, you might as well just start the most important and the one that I don't think anybody would argue with the top two on the depth chart, at least right now. I mean, it's Spencer Rattler and it's Luke Doty. It's going to be this one of the only positions where it's going to be the same as it was this year. Yeah, and maybe the most interesting question there this spring is who ends up uh, as the third guy, um, because we talked about how Tanner Bailey seemed to make a move last year to where he was traveling um, to away games, which is kind of a signal that he had worked his way up uh, the depth chart there. And then have some highly touted guys behind him. You have uh, Colton Gothier. You still have uh, Jay Din. Jalen, Jalen Daniels, Jalen Daniels, Braden Davis. 
Yeah, Braden Davis, uh, who looked good last spring in the spring game, but you know it's kind of hard to tell in a spring game one way or another. Um, and then Lenora Sellers, who just came in and obviously has a pretty unique skill set um, that could work his way up as well. So that'll be what we're looking in the spring at that position. If you look at wide receiver, your top guys are pretty um, solid there. You got Juice Wells, obviously, on the outside. You got Xavier Leggett, probably, on the outside. And then in the slot, you got Amarian Brown and DeKaron Joyner kind of split in time like they did this past season. The more interesting question, I guess, is as you lose Jalen Brooks, as you lose Josh Van, um, what who's stepping in behind those guys? Um, because you still have pretty decent numbers in that wide receiver room. I think you have 11 or 12 scholarship guys, but a lot of it's unproven. So, um, what I mean, what do you see kind of playing out there behind Wells and like Leggett? Yeah, and um, I I do think even though his list is a tight end, we're going to get to that room in a second. I do think you're going to see a decent bit of Trey Knox kick outside. Um, he was recruited to Arkansas originally as a tight end. I understand that Dowell Walkins was his position coach at Arkansas, a tight end, but I still think with his skill set specifically that works well at wide receiver. Um, he was recruited originally as a wide receiver, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. When Arkansas was going after him, he was a wide receiver. They moved him inside. So that gives you kind of flexibility, but I think you're going to see a decent amount of snaps for him outside the hashes. Um yeah, you know, it's it's tough on the outside because I there's a lot of names. I don't – Omega Blake is a guy who we saw get a lot more reps in the bowl game. Um, that seems to be someone the staff kind of likes. But, again, you know, it's a bowl game. You don't want to make judgments on that going into spring ball and definitely not in the season. Um, Landon Sampson's in there. Peyton Mangrum's in there. Those are two guys – who've kind of slowly worked their way up the depth chart, but have played more on special teams, especially for Mangrum. Um, yeah. But Samson's I, a former four-star. He was a true freshman this year, so maybe he takes a step forward. Yeah, Mangrum's a walk-on, or he's on scholarship now. He's a former walk-on. Um, there's names there, but again, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about the unproven stuff. How many of those names are you trusting on third and seven to go pick up a first down? Which, the way you can with definitely Wells and probably Leggett, Joyner, Brown, too at least in spurts. I don't know if you had, you said about anybody else here. Yeah. Um, I do think that they are still going to bring in a transfer receiver. Um, and one name to look at there, which I mentioned on the insiders forum is Eddie Lewis, uh, who is a Memphis transfer. He was actually Memphis's leading receiver this past year. He'd be just a one and done guy, but that, you know, might fill in that role, uh, as someone that's immediately going to kind of find some room on the two deep. No, but that, that kind of goes to exactly what you just saying. That that's a proven college football commodity at wide receiver. Right. That's kind of what you're looking for here. So, and then, yeah, hopefully you see some of the younger guys come along. Um, you have some guys coming in like Kelton Henderson, uh, CJ Adams, who can, you know, s- sort of start to slide their position. Um, but yeah, I do think the 2024, class is going to have to heavily focus on receiver probably next year you're going to have to focus heavy on the receiver in the portal as well um, because you look at wells he's going to be a senior and probably um you know go oh, after mean, the season have, yeah yeah he might have one more year of eligibility because of code covid rules and all that but i expect him to be gone uh Leggett, 
will be out of eligibility. Brown, I think, will be out of eligibility. Yep. Joiner will be out of eligibility. Definitely he'll um, be out of eligibility. <laughs> so, yeah, you're going to have to definitely start to turn that wide receiver room over, but I do think you're pretty set heading into 2023, assuming you don't have any crazy in injuries or anything. Yeah, that's kind of the other thing with the – that's a good point. You talk about Lewis. Um, obviously, you know, you can say this about almost any team in the country. You lose your best receiver, you're going to have a problem. If Wells even missed a game, if he went down, really, who's wide receiver one? Like, you're you're playing at a disadvantage there. It's not like, you know, Tennessee could lose Jalen Hyatt for a game. They still have a, you know, great cast of receivers. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying you have to have, you know, what was it? Alabama had Devonta Smith and Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs in the same mall. Like, you're not going to have three NFL receivers, first round picks together. But it is a depth thing as much as anything. And really, it's trying to find another game breaker. Um, maybe not quite to the level of Wells. We talked about that on the last show. But someone else who can take the top off of defense. Yeah, and um, I mean, we saw a little bit of that in the bowl game with Wells being banged up uh, during that. That um, they had to lean on some other guys. Leggett did Leggett, kind yeah. of step up, I think, to be that guy. But uh, you still need other options because I, you know, if people can key in and, and double, they're going to key a lot more on Wells this year too. Opposing defenses um, kind of came then, in unknown this year from James Madison, but you're going to see a lot more, I would think, bracketed coverage on Wells next year. Definitely. And I think, you know, pretty much after the I, in in the bowl game, they they shut him out. Of course, like I said, he was a little bit banged up, but they definitely made an emphasis to uh, take him out of it. Uh, you look at we you mentioned tight end for a second. Trey Knox, Joshua Simon, I think both will uh, make Joshua Simon might be more of your every down tight end because I think he's more multiple. Um, I think Nick Elksness is going to play a role there. Um, he was behind uh, some pretty veteran tight ends at Florida, but um, I think he should be able to work his way in. And then I've heard thus far through winter workouts that maybe Connor Cox uh, showed up the most ready of the freshman tight ends. Um, so maybe he starts to work his way in a little bit. Um, you also still have options like Wyatt Campbell, assuming he comes back and doesn't transfer or something that uh, could play a role as a blocking tight end too and there's the obvious nicholas harbour caveat where if you get him right. that completely that completely changes your tight end room but going with what we have now to look at just kind of the names on the board yeah you're gonna like i said you're gonna see knox probably play both um simon how would you kind of i guess not to it's not all apples to apples like to like but if you kind of had to assign these tight ends that got in the portal to guys who had that tight end room this year would you like is Simon Stogner, Trey Knox's the Jaheim Bell role, and Elksness is kind of your Nate Atkins role? Would you kind of piece it together like that? Yeah, I don't think that there that's necessarily like a perfect comparison. But that's no, probably, I know it's not. Like uh, I said, it's not yeah. apples to apples. But but that's that's probably the closest. Yeah, um, Trey Knox is very very athletic. Uh, Perry, Coach McCarty, just did a film room on GamecockScoop.com that you can check out on him looking at uh, some of his plays and something that I didn't know or notice about him so much is just how, if he gets up to speed, you're not the first yeah. one guy is not him down. He broke a ton of tackles uh, if he got the ball in space. So I think that's a good way to use him. Um, Joshua Simon, like I said, I think he's bigger body, more traditional inline tight end from a blocking standpoint, but he's also very athletic uh, from a receiving standpoint. I think I've mentioned that he broke the touchdown 
receiving record at Western Kentucky uh, this past season. So he's definitely a red zone threat. Um, and then El- Elksness, yeah, maybe more uh, traditional blocking, but I do think he is athletic, which we saw Nate Atkins was pretty athletic too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's probably the, the roles that you see the most. Um, I don't know that you're going to see a ton of three tight end sets, but you may <laughs> see like Knox split out and two tight ends or, you know, whatever, if they want to get really um, creative with how they're going to use those guys. And as we mentioned in the wide receiver room, any of those guys go down, maybe you're going to be forced into some of those. Yeah, and you also do have a tight ends coach calling your plays now or a former tight ends coach. So he'll, if anyone's going to kind of understand that room, it'll kind of be interesting to see how he works with Jody Wright, kind of piecing that together, kind of who they think can do what on different parts of the field and obviously how that's going to affect play calling. Yeah, and some early returns on Loggins as a recruiter. Uh, I've heard some pretty positive things. Um, I mean, you think about Satterfield. He was a pretty effective recruiter at quarterback, but he didn't necessarily branch out into other positions on offense. Um, And it seems like Loggins is more willing to talk to everyone and uh, really put in the work regardless of position. Um, At least that's what I'm hearing so far. Uh, Running back. You got Juju McDowell, who I don't think you want carrying the load uh, from an every down sort of perspective, but obviously he should factor in. I mean, he's an explosive player. He should get touches every game. And then you bring in the transfer, Mario Anderson Jr. from Newberry. You have Lavoisier Carroll sitting somewhere on that depth chart, but we didn't see him in the bowl game, so I don't know how much he might factor in. And I think they're still going to try to bring in another transfer. Um, they just had... Mississippi State transferred Dylan Johnson on campus this past weekend. He's currently committed to Washington. Um, and I haven't heard yet one way or another if he's going to stick with that Washington commitment or come to South Carolina. I think they gave him a lot to think about, um, but we don't know really how that's going to play out. So if they don't land Johnson, I still imagine they're going to go to the portal for some sort of running back, just from a depth perspective. But I don't think you can roll with just those two guys. Yeah, that's kind of the whole thing, though, this year. You know, once Lloyd goes down, once Christian Beal Smith goes down, they understand what – they were very lucky they had Jaheim Bell, a guy who had taken carries before from tight end, a guy who was a running back in high school, just kind of sitting on the roster there that they could plug in. But that's not the norm. You don't usually get to do that if both your top two running backs go down. So I think this that is a priority for the staff. I think they definitely – you know, they understand what happens when running backs go down. They understand how, how much that can handicap an offense, what that can kind of do to your play calling. And I think they're kind of very, I don't want to say eager, but they're going to they're gonna do everything they can to make sure that situation doesn't happen again because that specific problem has already happened. You talk about, you know, first-time coaching staff, learning from mistakes, correcting things that maybe you didn't get right the first time. You can't go into the season with two running backs you're confident in. That just can't happen, and I don't think they're going to. Um, but you're whether that's someone else in the depth chart or whatever, they're, they're going to have – you said you had Rashad Amos transfer out of the program. Um, Dante Miller is obviously out of eligibility now, the grad transfer from Columbia. So they're going to have to do something there, even beyond these top two. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and then you look at the offensive line. Uh, the left side of the offensive line is pretty straightforward as long as there's no injuries. You got Jalen Nichols at left tackle, Ja'Kai Moore at left guard. Both those guys played a good bit there this past season. But then you look at the center, you look at the right guard, you look at the right tackle. Um, all three of those guys are going to have to be replaced. Um, you do have some 
depth there with guys that had a lot of snaps. I'm thinking like a Vershawn Lee, Tyshawn Wanamaker. You bring in some transfers like Nick Gargiulio out of Yale and Sidney Fugar out of Western Illinois. Um, Fugar, at least, told uh, Gamecock Scoop in, in the interview that we have on our YouTube channel that he had been playing tackle or been playing tackle. Um, so maybe he slots in there, um, at least as a backup to Wanamaker or something. I don't know what we're doing at center, though. What do you? What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, that's kind of the – it's almost – you know, I'm a big believer you can never have too many offensive linemen. They get hurt. They get banged up. They get rolled up literally on every single play. It is kind of an abundance of tackles, though, right? You know, you, you know, Nichols, obviously a tackle. Moore is going to play guard, but he's a tackle by trade. He, he was the backup left tackle to start last season. Um, Jarjulio, tackle at Yale. Uh, Wanamaker played tackle this year. Cason Henry, who we didn't even mention yet, he played tackle, right tackle, all of his reps this year. He's – going to be in the mix somewhere um and then obviously you've got um fugar to tackle hank manos is the early betting favorite if you want to call it that just by virtue of being the backup center all year and having another year of eligibility i don't know if that's what the staff wants is hank manos taking 700 snaps this year whatever he did okay in a little bit of action I think it was a Tennessee game. Eric Douglas got hurt for a couple series. Um, it was Tennessee, right? Eric that, Douglas. It was, yeah, that's what I remember. I, he might have had to play a little bit against Georgia too. It was definitely a game that I was there for, though. Yeah. Um, so Manos early, but I, again, that's not a lot of experience there. Obviously, thrown into a key position on the field. I don't know if the answer there is portaling. It's probably the hardest position to get in the portal, which because literally everybody needs a good one, and there's not that many of them out there. Um, no, I'm assuming they take one of these guys, either transfer someone that has traditionally played a different position and uh, cross-train them to be center. Could Vershawn Lee? That's kind of my – I don't want to say favorite because I don't know. That's my – like if I had to make a pick just because he's played interior a lot, so you're not moving a guy from tackle all the way to the middle. And he play, he's played a lot of college snaps, so you're not throwing a freshman or a, a guy from another – you know, no disrespect to the Ivy League – Throwing them in there at SEC center lineup against NFL defensive tackles. Um, I would say Vershawn Lee would be my pick, but I'm curious what you would go with if you're on this coaching staff. No, I mean, I think that probably is the top of my list as well. I don't know if Garjulio or Fugar, you know, maybe snapped the ball at all in high school or, or anything like that, that um, maybe gives them an inside track. So I think, yeah, Lee, Manos, um, if you put Lee at center, maybe – Garjulio or Fugar kind of uh, starts off at that right guard. Um, I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, but I do think the staff did a good job of sort of filling in some depth. Um, you have a lot of guys with a lot of uh, experience at South Carolina, <clears throat> um, redshirt seniors, uh, six-year super seniors, whatever. Um and we'll just have to see. Oh, another guy we haven't mentioned. Uh, Tosin Babalade is going to be in the build. I don't know if he's going to play a lot early. I don't. It's kind of a. It's another tackle, though. Again, it's he's. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing is you actually brought in a really really good uh, twenty twenty three offensive line class. Um, you also have. Uh, well, no, because never mind. Sorry, I was thinking of the JUCO guy, but that that decommitted. But either way, you have Marky Anderson. 
uh, Sosa Babalade, who were Katie both Shivers. four stars. Jatavius Shivers is a three star, but he's you know one of those Georgia three stars that uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. can very very easily uh, go under the radar in a state that's so loaded with talent. Um, so yeah, I do think that your freshman class is really good. It's just really hard to play offensive line as a freshman. Um, but you know, maybe the, some of those guys come yeah, in. Yeah, and I think the other angle here too, and we don't know how this is going to play out. You've got a new offensive line coach. Um, I know he filled in last year after Greg Atkins went down with his health scare, but Lonnie Teasley is a new offensive line coach. This will be his first time kind of molding an offensive line at this level. I know he did it at North Carolina A&T, um, an FCS school, but how does his perspective on things kind of go? How does his coaching kind of affect who those five guys might be on opening day? Um, just something else to consider. You got a new, you got a new voice in the room there working directly with all these guys. Yeah. And on that same note, you do still have some carryover because Atkins is going to be like an analyst sort of role. Right. Um, one other just quick news note, since we're talking about that and then we'll get into some basketball. Um, yesterday, uh, several sources reported that South Carolina, another analyst um, from Austin P. His name is Ryan Yurichek. He actually is originally from South Carolina. He is a Myrtle Beach native. Um, and then he spent some time as a grad assistant at Arkansas before being Austin P's tight end coach. Um, and then as a player, he actually played tight end at Marshall. Um, tie the program record with past receptions and 42 consecutive games. That's pretty cool. Um, you know who his dad is very quickly in the NFL in Oakland. Uh, yeah. He's also on Arkansas staff, right? Or he was He's the AD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and former coastal Carolina AD, which is where the Myrtle beach comes in. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you, you imagine that um, if he's going to be an offensive analyst that, Perhaps uh, there's some ties there with logins and stuff as well. So, oh, one um, more analyst note: Nick Coleman is now at UAB um, as a QB's coach. He was, we think, calling plays with Freddie Kitchens in the bowl game. At least Beamer said he was contributing with him. Um, Nick Coleman is at UAB now on Trent Dilfer's new coaching staff, which I still can't believe is a thing that's happening. But so that's another kind of revolving door in the analyst room for South Carolina that broke, I think, yesterday. Yeah. So. Interesting notes there. Um, but as far as the on-field staff, uh, pretty much other than Teasley. Um, oh, did we get both. to the extensions, by the way? We t- did we talk about Beamer's on here at any point in the coaching staff? Um, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast. We definitely talked about it on the website, obviously. Um, but yeah, so Shane Beamer got a extension seven years. Six, I think. Six years. I, look, I was more talking about the assistants because we're talking about that. Um Got Lonnie Teasley paid. Um, they got really all of the assistants, I said, except I think Justin. St- I'm pulling it up now. Um, the assistant coaches summary. Yeah. So extended was Torian Gray through 2025, uh, Montario Hardesty, Jimmy Lindsay, Sterling Lucas through 2024. And then from a coordinator, Clayton White also got a raise and he is extended through 2025 now. Obviously, all of that alongside Shane Beamer who is now compensated, I think, more what you would expect him to be and is through 2027. Yeah, and honestly, that's something, as I've talked to recruits and seen some of the national guys talk to recruits, it seems like that's something that they're really pushing on the recruiting trail is that stability now. Um, I've seen several recruits mention, like, oh, obviously um, something's going right at South Carolina because Shane Beamer just got a big extension in a race. Uh, So it seems like that's something that the staff is kind of talking with future players about as well. 
Yeah, he's no longer the lowest paid non-Vanderbilt coach in the SEC. He, for a minute there, he was making less than brand new Arnett at Mississippi State, um, which is no longer the case. Yeah, so, and, you know, uh, I'm sure that there are some people that might think it's a little too soon or it's following the same path as uh, Will Muschamp, who, you know, got nine wins in his second season, got an extension, and then, you know, the wheels fell off or whatever. Um, but really, this is what you had to do to keep him along, stay competitive, all those sorts yeah. of things. Um, I don't think that he got overly compensated or whatever if you look around the league. So um, It's going right for, yeah. for, for football coach in the SEC. Exactly. Uh, we're in the middle of basketball season. So last week we had some fun things to talk about with the men. Uh, after they got blown out at home, they responded by going on the road and getting the third win ever in Lexington uh, by beating Kentucky. But then this past week kind of returned back to the mean. So they had another home blowout uh, versus AM, where, you know, 10 minutes into the game, it was pretty much over again. Uh, and then this past week, they lost to Ole Miss by 12 or so. Um, 70 to 58, yep. Yeah, pretty winnable game, um, but just really couldn't get anything going on offense. Still settling, I think, for too many jump shots, and that created too many easy transition points in both those games, really, I think. Yeah, I think my I think my kind of my thing with the men's team right now, um, none of this is really surprising. We kind of knew what the deal was this year. That I'm not going to use the word, the Q word. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's what's happening. There is, you mentioned you felt like that game was over against AM in 10 minutes, which it was. And I remember Lamont Paris said after the Tennessee game that he felt like some guys were just waiting for the clock to tick out. Um, this team folds pretty quick when things don't start well. I think we've kind of seen that. Um, whether that's the George Washington game going back to a slow start in November couple of those games in Charleston. Um, and the flip side of that is they led the entire game at Kentucky. Uh, when they were playing from ahead in that game, yeah, they looked pretty good. I think it was 13-2 to two start. That Vanderbilt game was a bad eight and lead the whole time. They were never down big. Um, and I don't know what that says about this team, that the recipe for even a chance of success is you can't get it in an early hole. Um, but I don't think it's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think about it outside of – Michi Johnson, who's still this is his first year as a starter outside of uh, Hayden Brown, who, you know, definitely has uh, earned his stripes over the course of five years or whatever he was that would sit or maybe this is his fifth year um, that the team's pretty young. So it kind of makes sense that they're streaky when things are going well, they can ride that momentum wave up. But when things start to go bad, it just kind of snowballs on them but i do think that that's something that throughout the season you need to see uh change in order to just you know feel good about paris's coaching style feel good about some of the guys that are going to come back next year um speaking of guys that are going to come back next year zachary davis at least had a nice game against a&m that's a true freshman who definitely had his best game of the season uh against a&m so maybe that's something that you can start to build around next year um, if you're looking at some of the 2023 recruits, I know that Arden Con Conyers uh, has really started to blow up nationally. It's a that's an in-state guy that wasn't super highly ranked when he 
uh, signed with South Carolina or when he committed to South Carolina. Um, but I do think he's starting to get more and more exposure. So maybe that's a guy that you kind of got in early on. That's a diamond in the rough. Um, but you're still going to need some more Colin Murray boils too coming in next year. Right. But you're still going to need some more elite, um, level guys. I mean, even with Gigi Jackson, who is undoubtedly elite, you can't win with only having that one guy. All right. Can we have that conversation too? While we're, while we're here, um, you mentioned settling earlier. I think that's probably a fair way to put kind of what Gigi Jackson's into right now. I don't know if you watched that old Miss game on Tuesday, but I felt like his stats look good. He hit a couple of threes in garbage time. Um, I think that's deceptive. He was in single digits most of the night. He wasn't shooting well. I feel like every trip up the floor, he was kind of settling in that 16 to 18 foot range. A lot of step back jumpers. Kermit Davis, the old Miss coach, actually said after the game they were keying on Gigi Jackson taking step back jumpers, which when you have an NBA physique, an NBA frame, go to the rim. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think that's something that the entire team really needs yeah. to do a better job of. Uh, they're not getting enough penetration. Michi Johnson's someone that's fast enough to create that penetration and create shots. And uh, oftentimes he's shooting from the logo when it hits, <laughs> uh, when it hits like it did against Kentucky, you know, it, it works out. But and yeah, I do agree with uh, Gigi. There's a couple times against Ole Miss that he did go to the rim and had some really nice like dunks. Um, and I think he could probably push it a little bit more. Um, but he does seem a little content taking those jumpers. The other thing is he's a good free throw shooter too. So get to the rim, get fouled, get to the line. Like that's kind of, this is not a team that's going to be able to generate a lot of offense on its own. I don't think that's, I'm speaking out of turn when I say that Um, you're going to need, I mean, they're not, you got to still got to hit them, but get to the free throw line, get free points. Mickey Johnson's a pretty good free throw shooter too. Um, That might be a way you can get things going, but I think the bottom line, this is kind of what I wrote about after the game Tuesday You've got three players in this team you're depending on for offense, pretty much. Chico Carter Jr., kind of, but it's Hayden Brown, it's Mickey Johnson, it's Gigi Jackson. And if all three of those guys aren't playing well, and Lamont said this in his opening statement, they're not going to win. They're just not. Um, You need at least, really all three of those guys, but at least two of them to be playing well um, to have a chance against anybody. Yeah, and it felt like that Ole Miss game was a winnable game, but you texted me at halftime, and it kind of was like, Michi is having an off night. If he wasn't having an off night, you probably are right there in the mix on this. But zero points um, at halftime. Yeah, yeah. And you, yeah, you, you can't have one of those guys have an off night because you don't have a ton of people that can step up uh, in the background. At least not at this point. Maybe Zachary Davis uh, or Daniel Hankins, Samford, or whatever along the back half of the season becomes someone yeah. like you can lean on uh, to step up when one of those other guys is off, yeah. but I have, you just don't have it right now. Not to keep it completely negative. I have one more men's point. I do think is important to address. Uh, the rebounding is bad. Um, it's really bad. I mean, that A&M game, A&M missed 27 shots in that game and had 19 offensive rebounds. Um, and then you turn that around to Ole Miss, South Carolina, I think only had four offensive rebounds that entire game. Uh, they're not rebounding at either end of the court. I asked Lamont about that after the game. He kind of said that, that he he gave a full answer, which you can see on Gamecocks online, but he was talking about they got to go back and watch. Like, how many times are guys going to the ball? How many times are you – of the times you're on the court and the shot misses, how many times are you in the vicinity? How many times are you making an effort to get a, to get a rebound? And they're not a good rebounding team, which I feel like that shouldn't be the case with an NBA guy. You've got Josh Gray who's a seven-footer. Michi Johnson's a pretty good rebounder for a guard. Um 
you can lose rebounding battles. You shouldn't be giving up 19 offensive rebounds in a game or only getting four yourself in two different games. Yeah, so I guess the big question going forward, because again, we we kind of said the season this isn't a tournament team or anything, but like, what are you looking for down the back half of the SEC schedule to show growth, to show that maybe Lamont Paris was the right guy for this hire, um, and to give you some confidence going into next year? I would say kind of we're, you know, we're, what are we, five games into SEC play now? Got another one, another tough game Saturday. Got a ranked Auburn team coming into Colonial Life Arena. Um, I, you know, you see more, I'd like to see more from the freshmen. And really, uh, when I say that, I mean Hank and Sanford and Davis because they're the freshmen who are going to be here next year. Um, and the rebounding, you know, it's going to be tough against the SEC teams, but you need to see a little bit more there. Um, and if anybody out there, by the way, speaking of Saturday, wants to relive that Clemson football win, they are, Honoring the football team at halftime, Shane Beamer is going to speak, and the Palmetto Trophy will be at Colonial Life Arena. So if you're not doing anything Saturday, come on out, and who knows, maybe they'll give Auburn a game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the very least, Gigi Jackson has been good for like a couple of really impressive NBA-level yep. plays per game, um, and he'll be playing in the league next year. So uh, good to uh, at least – Witness that in person a little bit a few more times this season. Um, And then the women are the exact opposite. We were all doom and gloom (laughs) with the men, but the women continue their perfect streak. Um, I saw a couple of like national level articles today debating if they're going to trip up, you know, if they could potentially go the whole season undefeated. Um, You did a really cool uh, article this morning that's on game.com on kill shots, which maybe you can explain a little bit about what that is. Uh, but basically their propensity to like take over a game through stretches and um, they seem to because of and this is something we talked about last week, but because of their depth, they seem to just be able to let some teams stick around for a bit. But eventually they have that next gear that just runs away from everyone. Yeah. So kill shots. This is from Evan Mayakawa. He's a men's college basketball analytics writer. He's got a website. He's got some good stuff on, on men's. You should check out on his website. I linked it in the article. He came up with the term kill shots, I think last season, where he, he had 82% of the time in men's college basketball. When you go on a 10 nothing run or more, you win the game. So he's calling those kill shots that way more often than not, if you if you could score 10 points in a row at any point in the game, you're going to win. And, you know, kind of watching that game Sunday, South Carolina's at home against Missouri. It was a back and forth game for about a quarter and a half was, I think it was 35 to 28 South Carolina, seven point game. And South Carolina scores 17 points in a row. They're up 24. The game's over. Mizzou never got back in it. Think back to the game before Kentucky, South Carolina starts flat. They're down 10, 16, nothing run. They're up six. Kentucky never leads again. They are, as the term goes, why I wanted to write about it, killing teams off with one run. You just go on these one hot streaks. I asked Dawn about it the other day. Um, she just kind of she said it was contagious, which I thought was interesting. That she kind of just thinks that offense playing well leads to defense, defense playing well leads to offense. One player gets hot, other players get hot. Contagious was the word she used, which I liked. That it is just once you get going, this is a really tough train to slow down. Yeah, and uh, I don't know that they have too many <clears throat> opportunities, at least through the SEC schedule, to be beaten. Um, I still don't know if I'm gonna. I, I would probably take the odds that they eventually drop a game in the regular season uh, over. Got 11 you know, left. 11 but, regular season games left. Um, they're going to beat Vanderbilt tonight, so it'll be 10 after that. 
It's that it's that week in in February. You got UConn and LSU on back to back Sundays. Um, that's kind of what you're looking at at this point. Um, I know you've got Tennessee in there too, which is a sneaky road game, but it's UConn and LSU back to back Sundays. One home, one on the road. That's two of the other top five teams in the country right now. Uh, I think LSU's three and UConn's five in the poll this week. So you're going to find out in a seven day period here coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and we, I mean, we saw early in the season when they went to Stanford that they are beatable. I mean, that was mm-hmm. a game they really got outplayed in until the final, uh, you know, five minutes or whatever. Right. And then they kind of took over in overtime. But um, yeah, that's looking forward to that. You know, that's going to that's going to be fun. And, you know, I, I don't I don't know how many of you hopefully at this point. A lot of you are very interested in women's basketball. Come on, how can you copy at this stage? <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's fun uh, as a program that hasn't seen a lot of athletic success uh, other than you know baseball. Um, it's it's just fun to be the number one team and the team that everyone nationally talks about uh, all the time. So, yeah, my other women's basketball note: Aaliyah Boss has a chance. She she has so many records, but she has a chance to tie one of the oldest records in the program tonight. One of the one of the ones people thought never would be broken. Uh, Sheila Foster, 72 career double-doubles. A lot of players have tried. That record was set 40 years ago now when she graduated in 82. Um, Asia Wilson got close. A few others in the Dawn era have picked up double-doubles. Aaliyah Boston's at 71. She can tie that tonight at Vanderbilt. And then Sunday, they're back at home against Arkansas, where she could break that 40-year-old program record. Yeah, and I'm trying to pull up the exact stat but the there's one more reason uh to watch this one tonight other than just it's fun to watch uh a team and vanderbilt's winless in sec play and they're down to i think eight scholarship players now so that's not going to be a close game tonight but it's like you said fun to watch <laughs> se- sec yeah, network seven o'clock tonight the the other thing to look at here is uh vandy leads the overall series 21 to 20 Ooh. And South Carolina is looking to even the overall series against Vanderbilt for the first time since it was tied at one to one in <laughs> 1991 and 92, which was the first season in the SEC. Um, so, yeah, uh, they could historically even things up finally yep. after taking the lead over Clemson finally earlier, the, earlier this year, too. Uh, yeah, seven o'clock tonight. Uh, we'll have a live thread on GamecockScoop.com. If you want to come in, talk about the game, ask questions, I'm around. And then they're back at home on Sunday against Arkansas. Um, that's pretty much what I have for women. There's going to be a lot more content coming up, obviously, as this gets closer to some of the bigger games in February. Um, stick around for that on GameCookScoop.com. Should talk a little baseball. About a month, less than a month out now. Yeah, so some early polls are starting to come out. Um, one of them that you know is pretty well uh, received nationally is the D1 baseball poll. And I had South Carolina at number 23. Um, which sounds about right to me, I think, when you think about who's coming back, uh, the sort of season that they had last year and some of the transfers that they they pulled in this year. Um, but one of the other interesting things about that poll, I thought, was that eight out of the top 10 teams are SEC schools. So even though I do think South Carolina is going to be improved, the schedule is not getting any, any easier uh, through that gauntlet that they're going to have to run through in the SEC. Yeah, and I think you I think it's of those other seven, five of them are on the schedule this year. I know they have a stretch three weeks in a row in April where they're gonna play weekend series against LSU, who's number one in that poll. Florida's in the top five, and Vanderbilt who's in the top ten. Um that's kind of that's kind of what it is, though. You're you're looking at 
it's such a weird year for the program. All the transfers in. We, should we just say the elephant in the room? Like they're going to have to at least make the tournament this year to prevent staff change. Like that's what it is. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and I was trying to look back. So last year they went 13 and 17 in the SEC and sort of narrowly missed uh, hosting. A Not hosting, region. but no, narrowly missed getting into a regional. Yeah. 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 Um, and um, if they would have won a couple games uh, in Hoover, maybe they could have, but whatever. Uh, I think they need to probably be right around 500. Uh, I think 15. 15 I've so. talked about this with some other people. I think your number playing the schedule they're playing in the SEC uh, 15. There's, you got a 30 game SEC schedule. You need to put 15 wins on the board. You can concoct scenarios where like, oh, if they have 14, but they take two out of three from Clemson or they have this non-con or this other team, but 15 control your own destiny. You should be in the field. And whether that's enough to save Mark, whether that's enough for the fan base, it's a different conversation. But you're talking about getting in the field. I think 15 is your magic number. And that's going to be tough to get with this schedule. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's a respectable number. But it's also tough a tough pill to swallow for a program that was the top in the country for several years running there. Um, and, you know, was consistently hosting regionals and super regionals for over a decade uh, to be like oh well they might be able to sneak in <laughs> it's like i don't know if that's the expectation i don't know if that should be no, well, no it's not and that's another conversation we can have too i will say as far as sneaking you look at Ole Miss last year goes 14 and 16 in sec they sneak in not hosting i think they were a three seed in that regional they won the national title um if you have pitching you can survive in a tournament setting and this team i do think this team to get to this season a little bit there's going to be pitching um Will Sanders is going to be your opening day ace. He should be a first-round draft pick. That's kind of your – for those of you who are not as in on the baseball, it's kind of your Cam Smith, Gigi Jackson comparison. He should be the superstar of this team pitching-wise. You got Noah Hall who really kind of showed up last year and still a bit of a question about that Sunday starter, but I think Jack Mahoney kind of seems like the guy. And then it's the bats. I mean, that's kind of – I think we talked about this on a couple podcasts in the fall, but it's the hitting. It's what it's going to come down to is this was a – not just bad, but historically bad offense last year by SEC standards. You've got a new hitting coach. You've got seven new position players in the portal. Um, just hoping a couple of those bats are going to stick. Um, you can maybe piece together a lineup here that can score enough runs for this pitching staff. Um, but that's kind of my early read on things four weeks from tomorrow is opening day. And hopefully you have better depth uh, pitching-wise because last year the bullpen really struggled. The midweek starters really struggled. You can't you can't lose those midweek games. Yeah, that's um, another good point. They lost, I think, five of those last year. Um, that would be, you know, you're talking about, you know, in simple tournament, your RPI, your resume. That would be a way where even if you are winning 15 SEC games or you're on that bubble at 14, those midweeks are huge. Um, it just can't happen again. They lost five of them last year, and that would definitely – that's the kind of thing that could sink a season, and it did last year for this team, among other things. And I do think the midweek pitching should be better. Maybe some of those freshmen. Um, we talked about Eli Jersenbeck in the fall. He was their highest-rated recruit. Um, they got him on campus. He was draft. He was drafted but didn't sign. Um, I don't know if that's a midweek starter guy. Kind of start him there as a freshman to work him into things. But I think there's at least a chance you could see that. Um and I remember Kingston saying that Ricky Williams, the Clemson transfer pitcher, also could be a contender for that midweek starter role. 
Yeah, I also almost wonder if Jerzenbeck could potentially uh, work his way into like a closing role, depending on how, how he's got good stuff. Um, if you go back and read through some of my fall baseball notebooks, um, he's got a really good slider. That's kind of that was kind of the takeaway. Um, he's kind of got that closer pitch mix, for lack of a better term. Um, and I do think there is something to be said for especially those Sunday games when you're playing so many teams that are don't have as much pitching depth. You're at the end of the weekend. You're on your eighth, ninth pitcher. You put a guy like Jerzen Beck in there, give him the ball, and just kind of let him run as far as he can on a Sunday. And I think that might be a way to steal some of those games and steal some of those series, really. Yeah, definitely. So, well, we're excited for that to get started. Do you know what the the first date? Uh, February seventeenth. That is yeah. four weeks from tomorrow. They're playing right. UMass Lowell. It's not. It's not exactly a jam packed non con schedule, other than the Clemson series. Hey, you know, take what you can get there. That's and, another uh, thing, though, that they need. They know they need wins this year, and they did not schedule aggressively because of that. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, we will have on baseball get closer to the season. We'll continue to talk basketball. We're continuing some retrospective looks at the 2022 football season, starting to look ahead to 2023. And of course, there's tons of recruiting stuff going on as well. You can find all that on GamecockScoop.com. Until probably around this time next week, uh, this has been the GamecockScoop.com podcast. We'll see you.